You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. If you need a Bible, raise your hands. The ushers will be glad to give you one. And you'll enjoy the study so much more. So please raise your hand and get a Bible. Find your way to Matthew 26. And uh, Matthew 26, we are now entering the last section of the book of Matthew. Uh, We've been going through the book of Matthew verse by verse. And uh, here we... uh, a uh, little change from where we were last week. We, uh, we've been in a, a series titled Unexpected Messiah. And uh, the name of the series is because Jesus wasn't what everybody expected. They thought something different. And uh, when he came, it was quite a surprise of who the Messiah actually was. No one expected him to come humble and, and poor and homeless. And, and uh, nobody thought he would come with a redemption, to, with a mission to save. They all thought he was coming to rule and reign in power. And so he was very different than what they expected. Uh, we've gone all the way through the book of Matthew... And uh, we're now coming up to a new section, as I mentioned. Uh, we were in a section where we were a little mini-series that we did called the 11th hour. And we were looking at uh, the end times events. The Bible calls it eschatology, the study of end times events. And Jesus, I'm so thankful that before he went to the cross, he gave us a clear understanding of all that was going to happen at the end of the age. And that was the series that we had been in. And thank you so much for the feedback, by the way. Got a lot of positive feedback on that series and appreciate that. I'm glad it was uh, speaking to you. And so uh, here's kind of the setting. If you're new and you're joining us, Jesus finished his last teaching in the, in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Uh, a beautiful, stunningly beautiful temple. He gave his last teaching there. And on the way out, he takes the disciples, he crosses the Kidron Valley, goes over to the Mount of Olives, and gives them the Olivet Discourse, what we've been studying for the last few weeks. And he tells them that, hey, uh, this is what's going to happen at the end of the age. And there's a long time before the end of the age comes, but when it comes, it'll happen with these signs, and these are the things that you'll see. And then there's going to be an Antichrist who comes onto the scene, a world ruler. The world will love him. He will dazzle the world. He's going to set up himself as the greatest ever. He's going to bring all the world together. He's going to be a world leader. He's going to set up an abomination that causes the total desolation of planet Earth, right? There's the the end of the age, and it's going to bring in the battle of Armageddon. And Jesus then taught, he says, but I'm going to rapture my church. And then when I do come back, every eye will see me, every tongue will confess, I'll come in glory. Uh, There will be no hiding, no wondering, no mystery. Uh, Every eye will see. He's going to come seven times brighter than the noonday sun when he returns, and he's going to come in glory. And so he finishes his teaching on the end times events, and then he does something interesting He takes the disciples back and he brings them back to the chief purpose of his coming, of his first coming. What was the chief purpose of his first coming? To die for our sins. Your redemption was the purpose of his first coming. I want you to think about the scope, the magnitude of what Jesus did for you. 
without his first coming, we would be lost in our sins. Jesus, God, became a man. He dwelt among us. He taught us. He was tempted in all ways as we are. He took on human flesh. He subjected himself to everything that we have to subject ourselves to. And he experienced life as a man, our kinsman redeemer. And then he went to the cross. And he took the punishment of our sins upon his own shoulders. And Jesus tells the disciples after he talks to them about his return in glory and the kingdom age that he will set up, he tells them, no, before any of that happens, I must be first crucified for the sins of the world. Theologians call it our penal substitutionary atonement, which is a big word that just simply means this, the punishment that we deserved was substituted and put on Jesus. And he took our punishment and covered us of our sins. That's the atonement. Cleansed us, washed us of all our sins that we might receive his righteousness as a free gift. And you don't have to be special for that to happen. You don't have to be super spiritual for that to happen. The Bible says it's God's will to do that for us. And anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved you simply have to believe that God loved you so much that he did that for you that's what Jesus work was on the cross and so uh, the cross is the single most essential act in all of human history the single most essential act in of our redemption it is there it is the reason that God in his sovereignty has made the calendar where everything either points to the coming of Christ or from the coming of Christ, because it is his work on the cross, the central, central, most essential uh, uh, thing that has ever happened in human history, our redemption through Jesus on the cross. And without the cross, uh, without Jesus dying on the cross, all religion is vain folly. It doesn't matter how spiritual you try to be. It's all vain folly. All preaching is just senseless rhetoric without the cross. And all morality and self-improvement is an absurd waste of time without the cross. The Apostle Paul would say it this way. If in this life only we have the hope of Christ Jesus... If, if, the, if Jesus didn't die and resurrect, if in this life only we have the hope of Christ Jesus, we of all men are most miserable. If Jesus didn't die from the cross, let us eat, let us drink, let us party, let us have wild, hedonistic living because tomorrow we die. The cross is the essential keynote of all human history. And Jesus says, listen, before any of this can come, I'm going to the cross. And Jesus did go to the cross. He did resurrect from the grave. And now how we live does matter. Now what we do does matter. Because this life is just the seedling of what is to come in eternity hereafter. Everyone here, everyone on earth will live forever. Either with God or separated from God. The choice is yours, and it's all based on what Jesus did for us on the cross.
And so uh, I'm thankful, aren't you, that how we live does matter. There is life after death. Uh, there is a God. His name is Jesus, and he cares about our life. That is amazing to consider. And uh, so now we move into this new section of scripture, a new heading, if you will, a chapter, a division in the book, and it's the last division is Jesus moving right to the cross. Let's look, chapter 26. Now it came to pass, are you there by the way? Yeah, let me hear a big amen if you're at chapter 26. Verse 1, now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings, what sayings? The sayings on the Olivet Discourse, the end of the age, the end of the world, all those things we've been studying in the previous weeks. It came to pass when Jesus had finished all of these sayings that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover. Only two days away. Jesus is going to be killed in two days. You know that in, after two days is the Passover. And the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus says it emphatically. There it is. Two days, I'm going to be crucified on Passover. Verse 3. Then the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, and all the people of Israel, uh, uh, people of Israel assembled together uh, at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel, there with the chief priest and the scribes and the, the Sanhedrin, all the religious leaders, all of them gathered, all of the, the pomp and, and power of Israel's religious system all gathered together. And look at this, they're gathered there with Caiaphas, the high priest, verse 4, and they plotted to take Jesus by trickery and to kill him. They plotted to take Jesus by deception by ruse, by trickery, and to murder him. But they said, verse 5, not during the feast, uh, not during Passover, lest there be an uproar among the people. Right out of the gate, uh, uh, we're going to look at something here. Uh, the title of the message today is Lavish Worship. Lavish worship. And we're going to see some lavish worship. But before we do, we jump into this little section that leads us into it. And we see right out of the gate, we are seeing something. We're seeing Jesus's sovereignty on display as he heads towards the crucifixion. Sovereignty, what does it mean? Let me hear from you. What does sovereignty mean? Rule, control, power, authority. And here we see at the crucifixion, Jesus' sovereignty on display. How so? Well, notice what's happening. Caiaphas is the high priest. A ton of power. In this time period, Israel's religious leaders were very powerful, not only in the spiritual world of Israel's religion, but also in Roman government. And all the religious leaders gather here together. Caiaphas, the high priest, he had a very unusually long reign from uh, the year 18 AD to the year 36 AD. Caiaphas was the high priest. He's the son-in-law of the previous uh, high priest, Annas. He's been placed there by Rome and by the Jews. And he's a powerful man. But he's corrupt. 
He's benefiting financially from his position as high priest. Every time the Bible speaks of Caiaphas, it is always in a negative light. We're going to see in the weeks to come, he took a leading part in the trial and the condemnation of Jesus. We're going to see in the weeks to come that this trial that he had was a mockery of justice. He was breaking religious law in every way he went about it. There was nothing done above board. It was all corrupt. And that's because Caiaphas himself was a corrupt man. And the trial that he, he gave, and uh, the false trial he gave, was really just a, a reflection of his corruption. And here I want you to see something. All these religious leaders, uh, the scribes, the Pharisees, Caiaphas, the high priest, all of them, you'll see uh, it says here in verse, uh, uh, verse 5, they all gather together, and they gather together for one purpose. What are they uniting for? To kill Jesus. This is a crazy thing. All of the religious uh, leaders of Israel, they never agree and unite on anything, right? The scribes have one belief. The Sadducees have a different belief. The Pharisees have a different belief. And they all have their different sects. And, and here they're all uniting together for what purpose? Wow. To deceive, to capture, and to murder Jesus. It's interesting, by the way, the Bible tells us that the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. Something miraculous happened in your life if you made Jesus your Lord and Savior. You were delivered from darkness and brought into the glorious liberty of the children of light. You were saved. You were taken from deception and darkness and you were transformed. You were translated. You were brought into the kingdom of light. I remember when it happened to me, my life changed like that. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Jesus got a hold of me. I surrendered. I said yes. And instantly I was born again. And my life looked different. And I remember driving and listening in the same truck with the same radio and suddenly the songs were like, oh my gosh, these lyrics never bothered me before. Suddenly I was different. Suddenly my tongue was different. All the swearing that used to flow fluently off my lips now was removed. And now I saw the world differently. Uh, my eyes were being opened. Uh, that one of the number one miracles that was prophesied about the Messiah that he would do would be open the eyes of the blind. A picture of what he does spiritually for every single one of us who are saved. He opens our blind eyes. And right now we are looking at a world that is just stumbling and tripping in darkness. Have you seen it? And they lie under the sway of the evil one. And they're uniting under this movement and this sway. And those of us who are walking in the light going, can they not see this? And the answer, no, they can't. And I want you to see there's nothing new here. Notice when these false religious leaders who are not in a real relationship with God but are pretending 
and are doing it for their own position and power, notice that the thing they unite on, what an unusual way to unite. The things that are against, the things that are evil, the things that are against God. And all of them unite together. And here's what's happening. All of these religious leaders who were very powerful, as I mentioned, both politically and spiritually, they all gather together and they say, we want to kill Jesus. We're going to find a way to, to snare him, to take him. And we want to kill him, but not when? Not on Passover. Why? Well, here's why. Passover then was the biggest holiday of the year. It was the biggest holy day of the year. Holiday comes from the word holy day. It was the biggest holy day in Judaism. It would be like having an execution on Christmas Day. We just wouldn't do that, right? And so they said, no, not on, not on Christmas Day, not on Passover, lest there be an uproar. And yet Jesus, on the other hand, says, hey, listen, know this, that in two days is the Passover. And on the Passover, I'm going to be given over. I'm going to be captured by them, and I'm going to be crucified. So here, the religious leaders and all the power, of political power of, of Israel is saying, not on Passover. And Jesus is saying, no, on Passover, and both can't be right. By the way, when was Jesus crucified? On Passover. Who won? Who was right? Here's the question. Why was it so important that Jesus was crucified on Passover? Why was that so important to Jesus? Why did Jesus say it would be then? Why? Why? That was too many answers. I couldn't hear all of them. Okay, oh, great answer. Here's why. Because Jesus is the Passover lamb. Jesus is what Passover is. You see, the Bible prophesied that the Messiah would be the Passover lamb. It was planned when? Before the foundation of the world. And it was planned on that very day. And Passover wasn't really about Passover. Passover was about Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus rode in on Palm Sunday? Uh, just a few days before what we're studying right now. And all the people were crying out, Hosanna, which means God save us. Yahweh save us. They were all crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And the religious leaders were outraged. And they came to Jesus and they said, do you hear what they're saying about you? They're calling you the Messiah. They're saying you're God in the flesh. They're saying you're going to save them. Stop them. This is blasphemy. What did Jesus say? If these would hold their peace, even the what? Even the rocks would cry out. Why? Why? Here's why. This day, Palm Sunday, was prophesied in Scripture. In the book of Daniel, the very day was prophesied. And Jesus said, this is the fulfillment of God's word. And if they didn't praise, even the rocks would praise. Because God said, praise would happen on this day. What's my point? Here's the point. God's word is so sure. God's word is so true. We can trust it. And as we look 
as we look at God's word and what it has to say about parenting, what it has to say about being a husband, what it has to say about being a wife, what it has to say about our job, what it has to say about when someone wrongs us, what it has to say about uh, being honest and forthright in our business dealings, what it has to say about being truthful with others and being truthful. We can walk in it and have incredible wisdom and discernment because God's word will always be fruitful, will always come to pass. We can bank on it. And here we see Jesus' sovereignty on display at the crucifixion. Why did Jesus die on Passover? Because it fulfills Bible prophecy. Jesus is our Passover lamb. The Passover lamb, uh, it's all started way, way back in the days of Moses, centuries prior to Jesus' coming, when the children of Israel were in slavery in Egypt. Egypt in the Bible, a picture of the world. God's children lost in sin, slaves of sin in the world under the bondage of slavery to sin in the world. And God says, I'm going to deliver my people by a mighty hand. And so he sends Moses, and he brings ten plagues on them. The tenth plague was the angel of death. And he said, listen, the angel of death is coming. And the firstborn of every family, the firstborn of every animal... Your dog, your cat, your cow, the firstborn of everything will die unless you believe. And if you believe, I will make a provision so that death has no power over you. Take a lamb, a spotless lamb without blemish, and put the, lamb, the lamb's blood, kill it in your place, and put the lamb's blood over the doorpost of your house. And what will happen? Death will pass over your house and have no power over you. Wow, what a picture. A picture of who? Jesus. Do you realize that what God told them to do was to take that blood and to put it on the side beams of the door of the house and across the top? Uh, uh, Steve, what's the name of that board right there? Uh, the top of the door. Uh, <laughs> and every house would have two lines coming down and a blood going across the top. And you know what that was a picture of? Calvary's Hill. Two crosses on every door, every house. The blood of the lamb and the angel of death would have no power over you. It would pass over. Jesus' sovereignty on display. And the religious leaders say, no, 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 not on Passover. It's the biggest holiday that we have. Josephus, the historian, writes, there were between two and three million Jews at this Passover, every Passover, and at this Passover when Jesus was crucified. Two to three million Jews in Jerusalem. Josephus would tell us, the historian, ancient historian, he said they would offer 250,000 lambs on that Passover. 
the blood would run from the temple, so much, so many lambs that would run from the temple out across the Kadron Valley. Kadron, by the way, means black. Uh, the blood would run out across into the Kadron Valley, and the blood would turn black. Uh, from and that was the that was Passover. And they said, no, no, not on Passover. It's like Christmas. That's our biggest holiday. And Jesus says, no, 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 on Passover. And his, 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 his sovereignty is on display. Just amazing to consider. By the way, a uh, little sidebar. Uh, how many feasts did Israel have? How many national holy days? How many holy feasts did they have? Good guess. Seven, yes, seven. Uh, seven. The most important of all of them, which one? Passover. And Jesus was crucified on Passover. By the way, Jesus is going to fulfill all seven of those feasts. That Passover, they thought they were looking back to Moses. God says, no, no, no. You are looking forward to Jesus. The feast, the next feast after Passover, do you know what it was? It was the feast of unleavened bread. They would have Passover, and that would start the feast of unleavened bread. And for seven days, you would remove all the leaven out of your house. Leaven in the Bible, by the way, a picture of sin. Sin. And all the sin removed from your house on the morning after Passover. What a picture. Do you understand? Do you get it? Seven, the number of completeness. Sin completely removed from your house by the Passover lamb. Jesus fulfilled that feast as our sins were washed away and forgiven and removed. Not for seven days, but the perfect number for all time. Uh, the next feast, uh, there's Passover, the second one, unleavened bread. Excuse me, uh, I just told you, the third. Uh, the second one was, um, yeah, unleavened bread, my mistake. The third one, uh, don't mind me. <laughs> the third one, do you know what it was? The feast of first fruits. First fruits? Yeah, a national holy day for Israel. Here's what they would do. They would take the first fruits of the wheat and the grain offerings. And all of Israel would bring their first for the grains, their harvest, into the house of the Lord. They would give it to the priest. And the priest would take these grains, the barley, the wheat, the barley, and they would wave it as an offering. And here's what it was a picture of. Here's the first fruits of a big harvest that is to come. We're going to be so blessed this year. It's going to be an abundant harvest. And here's the first fruits. And they would dedicate it to the Lord. And they would wave it publicly in front of all the people, the priest would. It was the feast of first fruits. Guess what happened on the, on, on the, uh, uh, that, the feast of first fruits? It was three days after Passover. What happened three days after Passover? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us, Corinthians 15, that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. The first one to get a resurrected body. And there's a giant harvest coming behind him. Raise your hand. Wave your hand. You're the harvest, right? You're the harvest that's going to come. And Jesus fulfilled Passover. Jesus fulfilled the feast of unleavened bread. Jesus fulfilled the feast of first fruits. That's the first three feasts. You know what the fourth feast is? The feast of weeks. You would count off seven weeks or seven seven-day periods. How many days is that? 49 days. You would count off 49 days after Passover 
and the next day would begin the Feast of Weeks. So 49, then the next day, how many is that? 50 days after Passover would be the Feast of Weeks. That is the day that the Holy Spirit came upon the church and the church was born. Jesus fulfilled four of the seven feasts at his first coming. There are three feasts left. And I personally believe, just as Jesus fulfilled all four at the first coming, he'll fill all three when? At his second coming. You know the next feast after weeks? It's not until September or October. It's the feast of trumpets. And the church will be raptured up. Jesus says, the trumpet will sound and the voice of the archangel will shout and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together to be with the Lord in the air. He's going to take us. He's going to call us home before he brings his tribulation and wrath on the earth and he's going to call us to himself and that will fulfill the feast of trumpets. And Paul would say, uh, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord from then on forevermore. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Wow, amazing, amazing. Next feast after trumpets is what? That's number five. What's number six? The day of atonement. When God makes atonement, uh, that's going to happen at Jesus' second coming. And then the last feast is Tabernacles. Tabernacles was a really cool feast. Uh, they would make booths, little booths, little huts, little tents. Uh, they had specific instruction. They weren't to cover the roof. You could put a roof up, but you couldn't. You had to see through it. And it was a picture of Israel remembering when Israel dwelt in the presence of God in the wilderness. When there was a pillar of fire at night and a cloud of glory by day and they kept the roof open so that you could always see oh God's moving let's let's move with God and they would keep the roof opening and it was a reminder of God dwelling with them during the wilderness wanderings those 40 years and that is going to be fulfilled when Jesus comes back and sets up the millennial reign as he rules and reigns from Israel bodily physically God with us on the earth. Wow. All of the feast of Israel pointing towards Jesus. And here we see Jesus' sovereignty on display. He is moving towards the cross and he says, no, no, it's going to happen on Passover. All the powers of the world are going, no, no, it's not. And Jesus goes, yes, it is. And sure enough, it does. Amazing. We see Jesus' power all through the crucifixion, by the way. Uh, do you remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested? Do you remember that? Uh, where was Jesus on the night he was betrayed and arrested? Where did they go? Garden of Gethsemane. And suddenly somebody shows up. Who shows up? Judas, and he's leading who? A massive group of troops. As a matter of fact, look at chapter 26. And uh, look at, uh, where is it? Look at verse 47. Save your spot. Come right back to where you were. But look at verse 47. And while he was still speaking, that's Jesus speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, 
I want you to underline those words. A great multitude with swords and clubs came from the chief priests and from the elders of the people. A great multitude? How great a multitude? How many soldiers do you think this was? Well, historians would tell us, Josephus would tell us, these soldiers came from the Antonio Fortress. The Antonio Fortress was right off of the Temple Mount. It was a huge area during all times, all times they had between 300 and 600 soldiers ready at all time to stop any insurgency and any riots that would break forth on the Temple Mount. Some things have never changed, right? Uh, still a hotbed. Uh, and these were like Navy SEALs. These were like the SWAT team. These were like amazing guys. And this was Passover, the biggest uh, holiday of all time. They would have had the most soldiers there. And the religious leaders sent a multitude of soldiers. There were probably 200 to 300 SWAT team soldiers, special CIA agents who came to arrest Jesus that night, highly trained, loaded for bear, the, the, the cream of the cream of soldiers. And when they came to Jesus, uh, Jesus sees them coming. And the scripture tells us as they were walking up, guess who broaches the subject? Jesus. And here's what he says. Hey, guys, who are you seeking? And the soldiers come in, you know, in all their marching and all their SEAL team, SWAT team, CIA glory. And they come in with a thundering voice, Jesus of Nazareth. And they're loaded for bear with weapons. And Jesus says, what? I am. In Greek, the word is ego ami. And when he speaks ego on me, all the soldiers who are loaded for bear and fully armed fall over backwards, drop down dead on their backs. Ego on me? Yeah, Jesus quoting the Septuagint written 300 years, which was the Hebrew Bible translated into Greek. Written three, it was the common scripture for the all the Jews at that time it refers back to Moses at the burning bush when God calls him and Moses says who sent who do I tell sent me when I go to Egypt who are you what's your name and God says ego ami and Jesus says ego ami and every soldier falls over backwards crippled on the ground why What's Jesus doing? Here's what Jesus is doing. One purpose and one purpose only. He is showing us his sovereignty is on display. No one takes my life. This is not an accident. I lay it down freely and I'm in full control. Authority, even over Roman soldiers. And Jesus wakes them up off of their fallen stupor and says, guys, get up. What are you here for? And they stumble to their feet, and in craziness, they arrest him. And Peter goes and he cuts off Malchus's ear, and what does Jesus do? He picks up Malchus's bloody ear, throbbing on the ground, and he sticks it back on his head. <laughs> and Malchus, can you imagine Malchus? What, all, all for what? All for what? All to show Jesus' sovereignty 
on display in the crucifixion. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down freely. Uh, this is his work. And uh, this is what's happening. This is the stage that is more moving towards. And we'll look at more of this in the, in the weeks to come. Right now, though, let's look at this lavish worship that's coming in verse 6. And when Jesus was in Bethany. Bethany is just right outside of Jerusalem. And uh, Jesus loved to stay there uh, with uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And, and now, though, he's at the house of Simon the what? The leper. Look at that, Simon the leper. Uh, if he's in the house of Simon the leper, then what do we know? He's not a leper anymore. Nobody could come into the house of a leper. A leper was an outcast. He was quarantined. You think you quarantine on COVID, not even close to what you do when you're a leper. You're quarantined for life, for life. And here, look what's happening. Verse 6, Jesus, he's in Bethany, and he's at the house of Simon the leper, who's been healed by Jesus. And a woman, John's gospel tells us this is Mary. Mary, the, the brother of Lazarus, the sister of Martha, all three of them, brother and sister. And Mary came to him, having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. And she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why the waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much, and it might have been given to the poor. John's gospel, by the way, tells us that this oil was worth 300 uh, darii. Uh, a darii was a day's wage. So 300 darii, how much is that? That's a year's salary. And she opens this flask worth about 50 grand, modern equivalent, and she pours it all over Jesus. And uh, the, the, the passage here says that the disciples were indignant. John's gospel gives us more clarity. John chapter 12, it says, guess who was indignant first? Judas. And Judas says, why the waste? And John would write in his gospel, he said this, not because he cared for the poor, but because he kept the money bag. And he wanted to take from it. He stole from the money bag regularly. And uh, uh, here, all the disciples, they all start chiming in. Why this waste? By the way, why the waste? Uh, people who haven't experienced the love that God has for them in Jesus Christ. Do not understand lavish worship. People who haven't been touched by Jesus' love, who haven't been enlightened, who haven't been born again, who can't comprehend what is the width, what is the depth, what is the breadth of God's love towards us. They look at what we do and they go, what, are you crazy? You're going to church again? Weren't you just there Wednesday night? And you're going to spend your whole morning there? What a waste. And they look at, uh, uh, there were people here all week long preparing for this summer vacation Bible school, this kids games, this space camp that we're doing. Uh, 
uh, they're making robotic pieces and robotic all kinds of things. Kids are going to have a blast, man. I've seen some of the things you got that were just amazing, right? They're going to do. They're actually going to do robotics. Uh, they're making all kinds of. They've been working all week long. Some have even taken a week off work, taking their vacation time to come and to teach 200 kids about Jesus. And the world looks at that and says, you're using your vacation time? What a waste. And it baffles them. But to those of us who have been saved, oh, there is no greater way. There is no greater use of everything that we have than to lay it down at the feet of our Savior and to worship him. Just amazing. Uh, verse 10. But when Jesus was aware of it, they're, they're all saying, no, I can't believe it. I can't. What is she? When Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? One of the other gospels says, leave her alone. I love that. Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always. Yeah, that's true. We still have them. Uh, but me, you do not always have. For in the pouring of this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. I'm sure she had no idea what she was doing was prophetic. She was just moved from the heart. And when you're moved from the heart uh, in, in, in just wor worshiping Jesus out of love, the Holy Spirit can steer you and lead you and have you do prophetic things in the name of, name of Jesus. Uh, verse 13, assuredly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. And here we are, 2,000 later, 2,000 years later, sure enough. Uh, powerful, powerful story. Uh, Mary unknowingly just anoints Jesus for his burial. And all of this lavish worship that she just pours out on him. How amazing. I can imagine the house being just filled with this fragrant oil. And I wonder uh, how long that fragrance stayed on Jesus. I wonder if she thought about just doing it sparingly. But no, she ends up just doing the whole thing. A year's salary just poured over him. Over his head, dripping down his beard. Onto his clothes, onto his feet. The scripture tells us she wipes his feet with her hair. She's just at his feet worshiping. And oh, the whole, the smell, the fragrance just filled the room. I went and got my hair cut yesterday, if you can't tell. And uh, as I was there at the little Lucadia barbershop, they put that food for that hot stuff on the back of your neck, you know, and they're shaving you. And, and oh, it smells good, you know. And uh, I noticed the rest of the day, I'd walk around and like, oh, I'd get a whiff of that, you know. I was like, oh, this reminds me of the barber. I wonder if that smell stayed on Jesus. And I wonder if the night when he was betrayed and arrested and he said, ego a me, I wonder if the fragrance came and... Ah, oh, Mary's worship. I wonder if he went to, the, uh, to his trial and was hit in the face and uh, when he was getting the skin ripped off his back by a cat of nine tails and the sweat just coming out of his body, uh, if it re, just, you know, restirred the anointing oil that was put on him and brought that fragrance into the air and ah, oh, Mary's worship. I wonder if he took it to the cross and on the cross he remembered... As the wind blew, oh, Mary's worship touched his heart. Leave her alone. She's done this for me. 
And all this lavish worship happening at this dinner table in the house of Simon the leper. Imagine how joyful Simon was. What does he want to do? Oh, I want to do a lavish dinner. It is my lavish worship of Jesus. Why, Simon? Why are you killing the fatted calves? Why are you spending all that money? Why are you lavishly worshiping Jesus? Oh, he came. He saved me. I was once alienated from the whole world. I was isolated and by myself. And now I'm brought into fellowship with everyone. And I'm brought into fellowship with my creator. And oh, Jesus saved me. By the way, that is a picture of what Jesus does for all of us as lepers. We've been estranged from God. And Jesus restores our fellowship with God. We then become part of the family of God. And we enjoy each other's amazing fellowship. There's none like it. Oh, it was amazing. Just to, you know, we, just, we gather on Wednesday nights. We just can't wait to be. Why? Because the love of Christ is there. And it's just amazing. Here's Simon the leper in his house, killing the fatted calf. This is his lavish worship of Jesus. And he's sitting at his feet and he's watching him. And he's just in awe of him. And he wants everything to be right. Jesus is here. Lavish worship of Simon, the former leper. In addition, at that party was Lazarus. Lazarus? Who's Lazarus? What happened to Lazarus? Lazarus who died? How long was Lazarus dead? Four days. Do you know what happened when Lazarus died? Well, the same thing that happens to when everyone dies. He goes from this life into the next. And there in Abraham's bosom, there in Hades, he sees that there's a whole other world he knew nothing about. And guess who the king of that world is? Jesus. And there he is in paradise in Abraham's bosom. And he's aware that Jesus is the king, the creator of all things. And there he is enjoying paradise. Being there with Abraham, with Isaac, with Abraham, with Jacob, with David, with all the patriarchs of the faith. Learning and growing about the kingdom of God. And there, after four days there, there's a voice. Lazarus! And all the authorities there in Abraham's bosom say, Lazarus, the king is calling for you. And Lazarus goes, Lazarus? Yes. Come forth. And Lazarus leaves paradise and is brought back into his body. And he's there at the feet of Jesus. And he sees them in an all new way. Oh my gosh. You are the king of eternity. You are the king of heaven. You are the Lord of all. And he's there at the dinner party in awe. Just wanting, watching Jesus every move. Sitting at his feet as he worships in lavish worship of King Jesus. Not only Simon the leper. Not only Lazarus. But also Martha. Martha's there. It's a dinner party. And what's Martha doing? She's serving. It's just how God made her. And she's serving. Only this time it's different. At the last dinner party she had for Jesus. Oh she wanted to be everything, everything perfect. That's her gifting. She's type A. I love type A people by the way. You do a great job. And she's there, type A, but she's frustrated. What is she frustrated about? 
Well, I'm making the meal, and I'm setting the table, and I'm putting out the nice china, and I'm doing all this work, and I put flowers on the table, and I clean for a week before this party. Mary is doing nothing. She's driving me nuts. And Mary, excuse me, Martha loses focus, and she gets up, and she's torqued, to use a nice word. She's torqued. And she comes to Jesus and rebukes Jesus. Never a good idea. <laughs> rebukes Jesus. Jesus, can't you see I'm doing all this work? Command her to help me. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and worried about many things. There's some Marthas here today. Just Martha, Martha. Take it easy. Take it easy. Mary has chosen the better part. She's chosen to sit at my feet. Relax. Relax. And now Martha, here she is, and she's working feverishly. She's setting up all the china. She's making sure the house is clean and clean it for weeks. Only this time, she's at peace. Why? It's just my gift. This is my lavish worship to Jesus. And I'm fine if anybody else is helping or anybody else isn't. No big deal. This is my offering. This is what I want to give. And she's at total peace. When we're baby Christians, when we're immature Christians, we often think that everybody has to serve like what? Like I do. Well, I'm working. What are you doing? <laughs> and that's okay because we're spiritually immature. We think our ministry is the most important ministry. We think, boy, I do it. It's the only way it can be done. And then we grow and we realize, wow, God's gifted me very differently than he's gifted you. And I love how you worship Jesus lavishly. And I hope you love how I worship Jesus lavishly. lavishly. Every week, I try to worship lavishly. I bring my very best to the table. It may not show. It doesn't matter. I'm doing it for him. Lord, I know how you feel about your children. And Lord, I want to give them a good meal. Lord, this offering is to you. And I don't get dis disrupted because someone else isn't working his heart. No, it's just this, it's my offering, Lord. And now there's this unity. There's this bond. And there's no tension in the house. And the sweet fragrance is in the air. And we're all worshiping Jesus with what we have to give. And there's a unity. There's a bond. We're growing. We're learning. We're maturing. We're with Jesus. He's the guest of honor. And we're gathered in her name. And there's a family bond. It's amazing. Welcome to church. That's healthy church. Wednesday night, as we were hiking up the mountain, oh, it was so cool. I was in the very back, just kind of watching everybody go up. 200 and something people climbing up the hill. Some are carrying backpacks with kids in them. Some are walking their little puppies and stopping every 50 feet to give a little water break as this tired little golden retriever makes his first long journey up a hill. Uh, some are there carrying ice chests with ice cream in it that are, are for just a treat for everybody at the top. Some are carrying glow sticks, a big huge box of glow sticks. Some are carrying a big huge crate of you know, waffle cones. Uh, some are, everybody is, and we're, everybody is using their gifts and we're just, some are just fellowshipping and talking and some are caring, putting their arm and praying around over someone who's having a hard time and, and everyone is just in 
harmony and unity as we bring our gifts to worship Jesus, as we climb this mountain to sing praises to his name, as we lay down our lavish worship in his name. So proud of you, church. So love worshiping Jesus with you. You're going to get me emotional. I'm amazed. I come. I look. Sunday morning. Every Sunday, the alarm gets set. I look. It's Dale. It's Dale. Parking lot Dale. 5.30 in the morning. He's not even an employee. He's a volunteer. 5.30 in the morning every Sunday. 6 o'clock every Sunday. Dale set the, unset, undid the alarm. I get here. He's weed-eating the parking lot of all the weeds so that when you drive over all the bumps in our parking lot... Uh, you don't have weeds all over. He's blowing the parking lot off. He's blowing the playground off so all the kids have a really super clean, pristine playground. Oh, it's amazing. I look at Galen and how he built all this stuff all week long, laboring in his garage for weeks even before this day. I look at how all the body comes together. I look how Isaac serves and I look at how uh, everyone you know, just brings their offerings and says, oh Lord, here it is. And there's unity in it. It's amazing. It's the way God designed it to be. And then Mary opens up her bag and she pulls out this alabaster box, this flask worth a year's salary and she just pours it all over Jesus. This is lavish worship. It's the lavish worship of Simon the leper. It's the lavish worship of Lazarus. It's the lavish worship of Martha. It's the lavish worship of Mary. It's the lavish, lavish worship of all of us as we just go, Jesus, I'm in awe of you. There's nothing like you. You're amazing. Mary lavishly gives her very best to Jesus. Lavishly just pours it on him. Doesn't say, I'm just going to give you a drop. You know, it's expensive. No, she just pours the whole bottle. Lavishly worships Jesus. Why? Because it was practical no. Because it was pragmatic? No, it wasn't. Because it was passionate. Worship is just a passionate response to all that Jesus has done for us. And oh, I hope you come on Sunday mornings with your heart prepared, with your mind fixed, with your eye agaze on the one who made you and created you for fellowship with him, that you might know his great love. You might understand all that he did to purchase your salvation, and you might come into his house to sing praises to his name because he is worthy. He's worthy. Jesus is worthy of lavish worship. And may we be a church who worships him lavishly. He is worthy. He is worthy. Think of all that he has done. He is God who left heaven, became a man, and went to a cross for the joy that was set before him. And you are that joy. Jesus would tell a story of how great his love was, a parable. He would say the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling on a far journey who leaves everything that he has and he finds a treasure in his field and he sells everything that he has that he might buy that treasure in the field and redeem it. That treasure in the field, take a look around. It's the body of Christ, his bride, his delight, his love, the apple of his eye. It's you. 
And that kind of love is worthy of incredible, lavish worship. That's what Simon the leper is doing. That's what Lazarus is doing. That's what Mary is doing. That's what Martha is doing. And you know what? As a result, they are growing like crazy. They're not the people they used to be. Their life is being transformed. They're walking in light. They're not stumbling as much as they used to stumble. And now they have wisdom and discernment and God's spirit leading them. And it's amazing. It's amazing. I also find this equally astonishing. It would be enough if we just stopped right there. But I find this equally astonishing. Our lavish worship touches our creator's heart. Crazy. How could someone that is so infinitely above anything we can imagine take interest in my feeble little offering? Do you think Jesus needed perfume? I don't either. It was worthless to him. And yet it touched his heart. This will be remembered forever. I will never forget what you've done for me. It will be a memorial of your lavish worship forever. I'll remember it. And I imagine Mary, when she stands before Jesus on the day that she passes and she leaves this earth, she takes her last breath here and she takes her first breath in her presence. And Jesus says, Mary, I still remember the smell. I received your offering. Here's your reward. Wow. It touched my heart. How incredible that my offering can touch the heart of the living God. How amazing to consider and to ponder. Imagine what Jesus was thinking as Jesus, excuse me, as Mary went for that alabaster box. He's there at the party. He sees the unity. It's all wonderful. And Mary then goes and she starts walking to the dresser. And Jesus is sitting there watching. And she goes and she reaches for that special drawer. You know that drawer. We have all your special things. And she opens that dresser. And Jesus is watching. And Jesus is saying, oh, I wonder if she will. And she reaches back to the far back corner where she keeps the most special treasure that she has. She planned on using it for her dowry. She planned on using it for her wedding day. And she reaches into the back. And as she does, the enemy whispers in her ear, you're not going to waste all this, are you? You sure you want to do this? It's worth a lot of money. Mary's hand pulls back. And then she thinks about Jesus. And she reaches in and she grabs it. Oh, so what? Do you think she ever regretted the decision. And there are Jesus' eyes watching as she comes over, tears strolling down her face, and she gets down on her knees and she pours it over him and wipes her feet, wipes her at his feet with her hair. Wow, just amazing. What was going on in Jesus' mind as he sees Simon the leper worshiping, Lazarus worshiping, Mary, and then he sees Judas. Judas. And he sees that same spirit. Judas. Oh, wow. Look what Mary's doing. Oh, that's awesome. And then that same sway. And he, instead of denying it, he gives into it. 
she looks better than you. You ought to do something. This isn't right. Why use all that? You could feed the poor. And now he starts complaining with a critical spirit. I want you to know this. A critical spirit often masquerades as righteousness. It's a deception. It's not true. Let me put Mary down. Let me put this work down. Why? So that I might look more righteous. Why this waste? We could have done this. We could have used it for the poor. We could have done this. And I want you to pay attention, church. Pay attention because what happened? Every disciple there was going, this is amazing. And then they heard Judah's voice. And what happened? They all said, oh, yeah. What about that? Why is he doing that? That's right. We should have. This is messed up. A critical spirit often masks arrayed as righteousness. But know this, it's not. It's evil. It's self-seeking. And Judas's critical spirit turned around an atmosphere of worship and turned it into criticism. And I want you to know, I've seen it happen over and over and over again. Still happens today. And in the place where there once was unity and growth and lavish worship of Jesus Christ comes criticism, back, backbiting, division, stagnation, and death. And a church that was once alive is now a dead church. And it all started from a critical spirit. Do not nibble when that critical spirit comes. Even if it sounds, even if it masquerades as righteousness, do not nibble. Do not nibble. Uh, the Bible is really clear. Six things the Lord hates. Yes, yeah, seven are an abomination to him. Uh, he that sows discord among the brethren. And it'll often be sown in a fake righteousness. I'm going to ask Kyle and the team to come up. The last point I would want, like to leave you with would be, be wise, be wise, pay attention. Don't let your lavish worship be destroyed by a critical spirit. Here's what I want to leave you with. A critical spirit is the fruit of those who are self-seeking. But generosity is the fruit of those who lavishly worship Jesus. Which person do you want to be? Which person do you want to be? We will see the next thing Judas is going to do. Take a look. Verse 14. Judas, after all the self-righteous criticism of Mary, out of all the self-righteous disgust, oh, I can't believe that. We should have used this for the poor. Take a look. Verse 14. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me? Give me. It's always about me. What will you give me if I deliver him up to you? If I deliver Jesus to you? And they counted, up to, they counted out to him. Say it with me. 30. 30 pieces of silver. A cheap price. The price that you would have to pay for a gourd slave. 30 pieces of silver. And he took it. So from that time on, he sought for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Judas criticized Mary 
for using one year's salary to worship her king. Judas sold him out for four months' salary. He betrayed him. Don't nibble on the self-righteousness. A critical spirit is the fruit of those who are self-seeking. Judas was just trying to elevate himself. But generosity is the fruit of those who worship Jesus. May we be worshipers. Amen. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.